questions. Um, That's great. I, I think that's really a good point. I, I, it's a nice way of expressing it, just that connected quality of compassion, yeah. whether or not we can do anything. question, you know, this work situation, anger, wants to do something, doesn't want to do it from a place of anger because it'll probably be unwholesome, but doesn't also want to not do anything. There's a, a fundamental There's a fundamental understanding you need to come to out of which action is possible that I think in a skillful way. And this, this is as a general principle is very powerful and very hard to actualize, which is the understanding that how we feel about anything, no matter what the situation, how we feel is up to us. It's our responsibility. It's not about the other person. But it is so commonplace, and we've all fallen into this. It's the other person's fault that I feel this way. The Buddha gave one striking teaching on this, which is so... I like it so much because it's so uncompromising. There's there's absolutely no wiggle room here where he goes through this whole list saying people may speak to you truthfully or untruthfully with concern for your welfare, with ill will, with wishing you harm. He goes through this whole list of the different ways people relate to us from really benevolent ways to really awful ways. And he's saying regardless of how people are, we should abide mindfully, resting in feelings of love and compassion for their welfare and well-being. And this was in the, in one of the story, and this is a little gruesome part of the story, and you may have a hard time 
Do you like Grusim? <laughs> oh, the Buddha was talking about one of his past lives, you know, and he was, and he was, there was just an evil king and the king was kind of soaring off his arms and legs. And the Buddha was reflecting back on that past life and he said, even then, you know, because he had been practicing, of course, endless lifetimes, even then my mind harbored no ill will, you know, had compassion for... So, uh, even in much less trying circumstances than that, the first step is seeing that how you feel is your responsibility. It has nothing to do with the other person. Okay, from that place, maybe that can help you open to the anger in yourself, work with it, come to a place of balance. Maybe it'll be quick, maybe it will be a whole process. But I think you can initiate a dialogue, a communication, which even if the anger is not completely resolved, but you know, this is my stuff. It's not about that person. The communication will be a lot saner, less threatening, because then you're not venting it. You know, you know oh yeah, you did this, this, and this. And I've been in that situation enough times to see the difference of outcome. Did you hear that? The, the, the comment was about a, a difficult situation, not wanting to respond to it with anger, a situation of injustice, not wanting to respond to it with anger and with anger, uh, and so held back from engaging in dialogue about it because not wanting to be venting the anger. You know, it's such a good example and question because I think one of the hardest situations to tease all this apart is in situations of injustice. What, and there's a wide range. I mean, this is one example, but of course there's so much injustice in the world and it's so uh, it's so seductive to get angry about it because it's unjust, you know, and we, we feel it. 
so I think the work for us is the injustice might trigger the anger. Right? Okay, so then we need to deal with it in all of what this whole afternoon was about. You know, so we take responsibility for that feeling, but we can we can use the energy of the anger. You know, that has roused something. We're, we're not lethargic at that time. Right? Once we and it doesn't have to be perfect, so don't wait until you're a saint <laughs> to do anything. You know, it's, it won't be perfect, but as long as we've done some of the work of taking responsibility for that feeling, you know, so we're not just venting the anger. We've done some of the work, I think, for example, engaging in dialogue, even if there was still some there, but you had enough awareness to see it, to note it, that you weren't just going to spill it all out, I think it it would be fine to engage. And generally, my experience in those situations is that the engagement itself and the the dialogue itself actually helps dissipate the anger because then there's some kind of connection with the situation. But it's that first step which is really important of enough disidentification or just... You follow? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Motivation is really key. to a room full of therapists. (laughs) (laughs) Nah. (laughs) I think it is useful, you know, at times. Um, Yeah, there's a lot to understand, you know, and and I think it is. uh, It's both something that happens in meditation. We get a lot of psychological insight. We're not necessarily probing for it, but it's just going to come. We're going to make connections and we're going to see things. And uh, being in a therapeutic situation, either with someone or just internally and trying to understand the conditioning can be a big help in non-personalizing it. Right. If it's now, I say this with. I may regret these words. <laughs> if it's kind of new understandings that are coming up, you know, and you really, oh yeah, you know, and things are like falling into place, and it, I think it's fine to really pay attention to that and to go with it for a bit. The problem is, and we've seen this 
many, many times. Have any of you ever chewed sugarcane? When you chew sugarcane, you know, at first few chews, there's a lot of the juice and it's very sweet, and then it just becomes this dry pulp. We have a tendency to chew on this stuff long after the juice is gone. <laughs> so that's the caution. When, yeah, when it's just, re- you're just telling yourself the same story again and again, I would, that's time to put it aside when you're learning something in really a fresh way to go into it a little bit I think it could be helpful comment was about opening up to receiving kind of the, the loving kindness or the sympathetic joy. I'd like to just suggest a, a little exercise in doing those practices which helped me a lot on the, being on the receiving end. You know, because in the loving kindness practice, as many as you know, you know, we start out with ourselves, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free of suffering. But in that situation, we are both the sender and the receiver. You know, one part of the mind is wishing it, and then another part of the mind is receiving it. Because the sending is the more active side, generally that gets more mind play than receiving. So a little technique, which I just experimented with and I found really helpful. In doing this method for myself, what I would do is imagine... I would imagine my teachers, but it could be anybody. You know, so I, I just imagined some of my teachers up there. And they were sending metta to me. So all I had to sit, of course this was all happening in my mind, but I was just sitting receiving their good wishes. You know, so I imagined them saying, you know, Joseph, be happy, be healthy. You know. And it's such a beautiful feeling. I could kind of relax into receiving it. And then, by way of expanding, I just, so there was just this like cone of loving feeling coming down, you know, enveloping me. And then I let a few other people into the cone. You know, so it was still, you know, all these beings wishing them happiness. And then the difficult person I let in. And then, so it's, it's just, it was just a way of practicing the receiving end, and it was beautiful. Could you stand, please? Maybe it'll be easier.
Are, are you talking about mixed motives? Okay, the, the two questions were about when there are mixed motives. You know, there's a kind of generosity, but maybe there's an there's a unwholesome agenda with it. And then how to practice non-identification of emotions, which is it's a challenging practice. Because we're, con- we're very conditioned to personalize the feeling. Um, start with the second one. Just... Uh, the very simplest way of beginning to practice it is actually using the technique which we often teach in meditation of mental noting. You know, so which is just that silent, you know, soft word in the mind acknowledging what's present. So anger's arising or sadness or fear. Sadness, sadness, fear. And just the act of noting in that way, it's taking I'm angry, I'm sad we're not perceiving it in that way. We're just acknowledging the arising of that mind state. So the noting can be very helpful. The second thing is to begin to notice what conditions the arising of the emotion. Because if you see the conditions behind it, you see that it's impersonal. You know, that it's not, okay, let me feel angry now. No, I'm going to feel afraid. It's not like that. We're not, we're not in control and we're not commanding them. So then we can see what are the conditions which are giving rise to them. And as we said earlier in the afternoon, a very useful one is to notice the effect of thought on emotion. Yeah, have you, I'm sure you've had the experience. You kind of be going along your merry way quite happily and then all of a sudden a certain thought comes into the mind. Maybe it's of a person or a situation or whatever. And the thought is enough to trigger a flood, you know, of feeling and emotion in the body. <laughs> what you could do is, and I've played with this a little bit, when I've noticed that happen, so then I, I notice that, I notice the emotion, and the emotion kind of subsides, and then I purposely have the thought again. <laughs> I just... I don't know, it's just so interesting to me because, I mean, thought, which is so ephemeral. When we really look at the nature of thought, there's hardly anything there at all. It's just, it's just like this little blip in the mind. And yet when it's unnoticed, it is so powerful in terms of affecting. So just to watch that, to play back, oh, thought, you know, flood of feeling. That helps to see the non-personal nature. Another way is to think back in one's life, and either if you have children or think back to when you were a child, you know, what can cause an intense emotion in a child. As an adult, it's, you know, it's, it's nothing. I mean, we're just seeing, you know, with real equanimity. 
from the child's perspective, though, the child perspective, it's just being triggered. You know, something happens. So this points to the fact that what we feel is very much determined by our level of understanding. If we're at this level, it's going to condition a whole range of things. As our understanding grows, I have very different emotional responses to the same situation. And I think my favorite story in this is, you may be familiar with it, it's of the Zen poet Ryokan. He's an 18th century Zen master, poet, hermit. There's lots of stories of him living up in a hut in the woods and playing with the children in the villages and just wonderful being. And he wrote wonderful haiku poetry and so at one point the story goes he was out playing with the kids. He went back to his hut and he was very poor. He had almost nothing. He went back to the hut and everything in the hut had been stolen. You know, all his possessions had been stolen. So being Ryokan, he wrote a haiku. <laughs> and so was the moon at the window. The thief left it behind. Okay, so just imagine now going back to your apartment. Everything is stolen. You know, the apartment is empty. Oh, the moon at the window. I don't think so. <laughs> and yet if we had Ryokan's level of understanding, that's how we would feel. And I just find that, as I say, we can see that just from childhood to adulthood. We see how much our emotions are conditioned by our level of understanding. Which is why, and this is really the whole point of this afternoon, is to emphasize the possibility of bringing wisdom to this arena of our lives. It's not, we're not in a set pattern. You know, it's all dependent on our investigation. Can I say a little more about the impersonal nature of conditioning? Here we do. And of course, this, the whole meditative practice is just this. It's seeing... Okay, this is a little exercise we do on retreat, but you could also well do it here. And it's a reframing the language of our experience as a way of highlighting the non-personal nature of it. Okay? So I found it very helpful to reframe the language for this particular purpose in the passive voice. So, for example sounds being heard or sounds being known a thought being known a movement being known an emotion being known so what does that passive voice construction do? it takes the I out of it there's no subject right? it's just things being known moment after moment and that's really what's going on but linguistically we've reinforced this very strong notion, I'm hearing, I'm seeing, I'm thinking. So this is a linguistic counterpoint to decondition that perspective. 
And at a certain point, both meditation and life gets much more effortless. Because you see that the knowing, things are just being known moment after moment. Well, let's do a little experiment. If, if you just kind of move your arm, uh, and just, you just feel it. Does anybody not feel the movement? I mean, this is not complicated. <laughs> okay, so it's just, it's just the sensations being known. Right? Sensations being... What's amazing about this simple thing, I mean, it's like the whole Dharma is here. The sensations are being known. They're being known completely spontaneously. Nobody's doing anything. You don't have to decide, I'm going to know them. Do you? you? When you're undistracted, it's just the sensations are known all by themselves. And they're known exactly, precisely in the very moment of their arising. It's completely effortless. It's just this, you can go fast, or you can go really slowly. It doesn't matter. The, the mind is not trying to catch up. It's always right there. That's very different than I'm knowing my mind moves, you know, where there's a kind of an eye up here looking at. So that reframing in the passive voice leading you into the experience of that perspective is a huge help. And the practice of meditation, once you really get that, becomes very effortless. Because there's nobody there doing anything. In the back. Who does the accepting? Who does the discernment? Who does the recognition? This is going to be a one-minute talk on the Buddhist model of the mind. And keep in mind that it's only a model, so we're just using words to describe something. And there are many models, but it's a very good one for understanding this question. And this, <laughs> this this could be two years of teaching, but <laughs> in this model, there are three things going on. There's the physical material elements of the body, of the world, you know, just matter, you know, which we experience through the various sensations we feel. So that's just, that's just material, physical phenomena. There's consciousness, which is the knowing faculty. It's that which knows. And so when you say, you know, things are being known, known by what? The knowing faculty is, that's what, um, how consciousness is defined in this Buddhist psychology. Consciousness is that which knows. <laughs> okay, so along with the knowing, in every moment, there's a whole collection of what are called mental factors and mental qualities which arise in different combinations 
in every moment of knowing. The knowing is just pure. It's, it just has one function, which is to know. But then that knowing is colored by greed, which is a mental factor, or anger, or mindfulness, or wisdom, or concentration, or restlessness, or agitation, or joy. Right? All of these qualities are what in Buddhism is called mental factors. Each one of these mental factors has its own function. It colors the mind in a particular way. So joy has a particular quality and it manifests a certain way. That's what I mean, joy, joy, is an anger, anger. That factor of mind arising out of conditions colors the consciousness according to its own function. You could say that in some of the question you're asking, who is it that recognizes or who's, who is it that accepts? It's not the who. It's certain factors of mind which have that function. Really, the word, what we call accepting, is really another word for mindfulness. Right? It's mindfulness because mindfulness means opening to, being with, accepting. That's the quality of mindfulness. So it's mindfulness, which is mindfulnessing. Right? Recognition. There's a whole, and this, this really is another whole talk of the mental factor of perception, which has to do with the whole world of concepts which we create. That's that factor of perception doing its function. So it's not that there's a who behind it. It's just each of these factors. It's sort of like a... What would be a good example? If, if you imagine a living jigsaw puzzle. Right? So when you look at the whole puzzle, we see the appearance of something. A man, a woman, a building, a house. Or, you know, it's a stretch of living. But, uh, but really, there's no man or woman there. It's just all of the elements in relationship to one another and then there's an appearance of something. What we do in meditation is we work, of course, on the level of the concept of the appearance. This is our ordinary conventional life. But from a deeper place, we begin to see all of that's an appearance coming out of the relationship of all these elements. And that there's no... There's no core self, unchanging self at the center of it. What we call self, what we call Joseph, is the appearance. Okay, I mean, this really is another whole huge topic. So if that was confusing, just let it go. <laughs> okay, maybe just a couple more questions. First, I'll, I'll give you just a little take on the Buddha's assessment about working with these states. He said, anger, or that side of things, you know, the, the, 
the ill will side, the hatred side, is more dangerous but easier to uproot. The greed side is less dangerous but harder to uproot. Why? Because the anger, hatred side is obviously suffering. And so even though it's powerful and can be quite dangerous, there's a certain impetus there. You know, how can I get out of the suffering? Greed is very seductive, you know, because it's so often associated with pleasant things. So it's not as dangerous, but it goes deep. So that's just to know that. There are lots of ways of practice, and it's a graduated One is the practice of generosity. The more we get in the habit of giving, where where we just practice that, and that becomes more and more our immediate response to things, it weakens the force of holding. Okay, so that, you know, you're at a dinner table. There's the last little bit of sesame spinach. You have the thought, oh, good. And then maybe, oh, no, no. Would you like some? You practice. We just practice generosity. We practice, you know, in, in Pali, the word is sila, the precepts, you know, of not killing, not stealing, not sexual misconduct, not wrong speech, you know, not taking intoxicants, which really confuse or cloud the mind. Uh, practicing the precepts in, a, in making them a practice. You know, so they're an active part of our lives. Provides many moments when we're about to do something, you know, maybe motivated by grit. No, I don't need to do that. And as I said, speech is a great area to do this in. Because so often, words are out of our mouth before we even know it. Okay, so working with the precepts, and along with it, the, the, the essence of the precepts is cultivating the power of restraint, renunciation. You know, it's so interesting, for me, certainly for me and I think in our culture, renunciation, I mean, it's just not a cultural value. You know, it's, and not only that, we think it just, ugh. <laughs> you know, you probably know the famous uh, words of... Uh, St. Augustine, dear Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. (laughs) (laughs) But there's another way of framing renunciation, and that is to begin to see it as non-addiction. You know, so we can all relate to non-addiction, you know, and see the freedom we see that addiction is the problem and non-addiction is a freer space. And so the next time you're, you know, going for the third scoop of ice cream, you know, if you're just on non-addiction, uh, for me that's really helpful because it reminds me of really what it's about rather than some kind of self-denial. Okay, so that's, I mean, the last one I'll mention is just the whole meditative process of seeing the momentariness of things. You know, that wisdom helps us not be so caught by the greed. 
but as I say, it's hard to, this is a deep one, so it takes all this ongoing practice. Okay, last question. Yeah. I disidentify. It's real simple. They're not going to last. And the more identified you are with them, the more you suffer when they change. So I'm not saying we shouldn't feel them, and I'm not even saying that we shouldn't cultivate them. You know, we do want to cultivate the wholesome feelings. But this is that difference between attachment and love. If you are attached to them, if you're identified with them, you're not seeing their nature clearly. You're not seeing their impermanent nature. And so when they change, as they inevitably will, then they're suffering. You know, and... I was just thinking of some TV programs, you know, the sometimes when I'm channel surfing, which is a favorite activity, I'll, I'll, channel, I'll channel surf through Sex in the City. Well, you're probably here at some point. And it's just so interesting to watch the identification with the emotions. <laughs> you know, and just, of course, you watch it, and of course, They're there, and then they're gone. <laughs> the love is there, and it's wonderful, and then something else. <laughs> it's just a reflection of our lives. You know, Holding on does not bring happiness, even if it's to pleasant things. So I'll end with just this one teaching of the Buddha. It sums it all up. where he said nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine whoever has heard this has heard all of the teachings whoever practices it has practiced all the teachings whoever realizes it has realized all the teachings nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine the I in mine is extra and so in our work with all of these emotions afflictive and Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.